I don't know whether you really uh, heard the part of the announcement about the, the baptisms coming up, but uh, on April Fool's, we will have... <laughs> <clears throat> just the way the calendar falls, people. On April Fool's, we'll have, valen- uh, have Valentine's, have uh, <laughs> baptisms. And uh, there is a sheet back there. I don't know whether you were distracted by the plunger and don't really know how all that, <clears throat> how all of that tied in together, but uh, you know, maybe somehow or other. But I know there were quite a few uh, in between the two services that had asked about when the next baptisms would be, and that will be it. So if, you're, if you uh, are looking forward, never been baptized before, or you were baptized uh, maybe as an infant and you want to do that as an adult by immersion uh, on profession of faith, we would be happy for you to uh, join us in our next uh, baptism uh, service on April the 1st. I think that's all my announcements. I had a couple more at first service, but uh, I'm not going to ask you to come to the uh, 9 o'clock service because if you do, we won't have anybody at 11.15. <laughs> it worked real well, didn't it? That is crazy. In, um, in, in this church, we believe that the Bible is the inspired and infallible Word of God. We like to remind you of that every week. It's the only standard that we use for faith and life. So listen as I read to you from God's Word. <clears throat> We're going to be- begin in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he, that would be Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Uh, Beginning of chapter 10. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, the one that is writing this account, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, um, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or any, enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take anything along. (laughs) I can't read this. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bags for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or staff for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. 
If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. The new series that we're starting today is titled, As You're Going. And we actually get it from um, the beginning of verse uh, 7 here. It says, as you go, preach this message. In this passage and in many other passages in the New Testament, throughout Paul's letters too, in the, in the original language that it was written in, in the Greek, the, the verb for go doesn't mean go and then stop. It means go and continue going. Keep on going. Do it again and again and again. When Jesus gave the command to his disciples uh, just before he departed, where he said, go and make disciples of all nations, he, he wasn't saying to those people, okay, you go. And that's the end of it. He was saying, as you go, as you're going out. And, and it means that not only for those disciples was the command given, but it was given for the ones that came after them and the ones that came after them and the ones that came after them and eventually for us here. So as you're going, we want to look at the things that Jesus did as he was going around his daily life in, uh, around the Sea of Galilee and actually throughout Israel. We talked last time Two times ago, I didn't talk last time, remember? Two times ago, we talked about uh, uh, this uh, idea of the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And Jesus said, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. He said, pray. Pray that God will send the workers for the harvest field. He, he had called for the workers. And then the people that were doing the praying began to understand that, wow, it's us. We're the ones that are supposed to be the workers. They were convicted. They began to see the world as Jesus sees it. Through his eyes, through his compassionate heart. They saw that they were not just called to go out and to warn the world far from God about this coming uh, judgment. They were to pray about it as well. Both things went hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. You see, prayer is not all that's required in Jesus' command. The believer who prays for God to send workers and then is unwilling himself to go, well, it's almost as if he's insincere in the prayer or hypocritical even. Why would you pray for others to go if you're not willing to do it yourself, to commit to go yourself? There's a story about Martin Luther. Remember the great reformist Martin Luther from one of those centuries back there. <laughs> I was going to say the 15th century. That's not right, is it? I don't remember. Uh, but at any rate, uh, Martin Luther is the one that nailed the, the theses on the, on the door uh, at... Uh, Wittenberg. And he became convicted along the way that the biblical teaching was in fact salvation by grace. 
not by works. The church had been teaching up to that time that it was works that gained you your salvation. It was the good deeds that you do. That was the reason, the motive behind doing the good deeds was so that you would be safe in, in eternity in your salvation. He said, no, that's not right. It's by grace alone. Working through a man's faith in Jesus Christ. And he began earnestly preaching and contending for that word, for that uh, uh, doctrine, if you will. A friend of his who was in this monastery with him and was equally convinced as he was that it was was grace and not works that uh, gained your salvation, they agreed that it was Luther's job to go out and preach this doctrine, to write about it, to debate with others about it. And the friend's job in all this, if you will, was to stay in the monastery uh, secluded, alone, and praying as many hours of the day as he possibly could that Luther would be successful. Well, one night this friend had a dream. And his dream was that the world was a field covered with crops ready to be harvested. And as he looked out over this field, he saw only one person doing the harvesting. One person. He saw this person way in the back, hardly able to even uh, make it through one row of crops. And as the man turned around, he realized it was Martin Luther. He got up from his bed, ran down the hall to Martin Luther's cell and said, uh, Brother, I've had this dream. And, and I believe that I too am supposed to be helping you with this work. It's not just my job to pray. I am also to join you in the work of spreading the good news of salvation. Well, up until this stage of ministry, Jesus had ministered alone. He had had the companionship of the 12 disciples all this time. And he'd had the company of a vast multitude of others that were following, following him around. We're not really sure how many there were. Thousands to be sure. But none of them participated in his ministry except, except as observers and perhaps as recipients of the ministry that was taking place. Jesus was God's sole worker on this earth for that great harvest field called the world. Matthew 10, 1 says Jesus called, called his uh, 12 disciples. And the verb that's used in the Greek there is pros, uh, proskaleo, proskaleo. It's actually a combination of two verbs or two words. Kaleo means to call and pros means toward or to. So it has the meaning of Jesus called these people to himself so that he could be face-to-face with them, have a meeting face-to-face, a relationship was built up in which he could teach them the things that he needed to teach them. When Jesus called his disciples then, he was making more than just a casual request of them. There was a purpose involved, and the purpose that was laid out there was commissioning them to do the Lord's service, commissioning them. We're having 
uh, ministry training right now on Tuesday evenings. It ends this week. Next Sunday, we will have a time of commissioning those new people that are on our ministry team to service in this church. On March 25th, we will be commissioning some people from our church that are going to Haiti on a mission trip, sending them out. On April Fool's Day, not Valentine's, on April Fool's Day, we will be having a uh, baptism service where we will be, in essence, commissioning people to become a part of God's family, a part of the kingdom work. Uh, They want to show that public expression of what's already happened in their hearts. In verse 1 of Matthew chapter 10, Matthew calls these people that we're looking at, these 12, he calls them disciples. And disciples, as we've talked about before, means learner or student or something like that. At that period of time, a disciple was one that wanted to be just like in every way, his rabbi. Wear the same things, walk the same way, talk the same way, study the same way, eat the same food, sleep the same place. They, they became their rabbi. Uh, the, the, the Jewish tradition is that they walked so closely in their rabbi's footsteps that their feet would become covered with the dust of their rabbi. That's how close they wanted to be to their rabbi. In verse 2, Matthew calls the same group of 12 people apostles. Apostles, and that word just means the ones who are sent, the ones who are sent out. Meaning, of course, that they were qualified representatives that had been sent to do a mission work Uh, A special purpose behind it for a special time. Jesus didn't call the disciples who became apostles on the basis of their worthiness. You understand that. Not on the basis of their worthiness. Not on the basis of their personal capabilities. And certainly not on the basis of their faith. But solely on the basis of what he saw he could make of them. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. None of the twelve. None of these twelve in this list that we just read. Initiated this. They didn't come to him and say. I'd like to be a disciple of yours. And certainly none of them said. I'd like to be an apostle. It was he who did the calling. Near the end of his ministry in uh, John 15, 16, it's recorded. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. The calling was all his. They had no part in the calling. We can, to a great extent, extrapolate that to where we are today. We think... We choose Jesus when, in essence, God has chosen us. During the three years of internship that they spent with Jesus, we see actually very few signs in these 12 of maturity 
or reliability. They just, those were not their hallmark traits. But we see many signs of pettiness and we see many signs of inadequacy. Yet they were there with Jesus for a purpose. And what was that purpose? What do, you, what do you think that purpose was? Well, the first fill-ins on your little handout uh, sheet there kind of tell us that. They had to learn as disciples before they could minister as apostles. There was some training to take place. They had to be trained. You couldn't just turn them loose and expect them to do what was to be done. And to every believer, Jesus says... Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. Just think with me for a minute. Imagine. Imagine learning from Jesus. Most of us have been in school, in college, university, in graduate school... Uh, in motivation seminars where we've had some absolutely excellent teachers. Some that we walked away from say, wow! But can you imagine learning from Jesus day by day? Much can be learned in the classroom, even in Jennifer's classroom. Much can be learned from good books. Much can be learned from personal experience. But, and here's the thing, spiritual growth comes best from close contact with God. Close contact. Where does that happen for you and me today? Where is that close contact? We're doing a a course here on Thursday nights called Habits of the Christ Follower. What we looked at last week was quiet time. What we didn't talk about in service last week was quiet time. Man, there were some people that were uncomfortable with the quiet time last week. You don't come to church for 30 minutes of quiet time. Quiet time. Not Bible study. Not where you open up your Bible and read and make notes and memorize and, and, and meditate and, and study through the Scriptures. That's not quiet time. Not prayer time where you're on your knees pouring out your heart to God. Quiet time. Where you are quiet. Quiet. Listening for him to speak to you. You ever thought of that concept? He wants to speak to you. He has something to say to you. But we've got such noise going on out here, such distraction in our lives that we can't hear him. Quiet time. Listening to God. One of the key verses from last week was, Be still and know that I am God. From Psalm 46. Be still. I hope somebody took 
an opportunity this week to be still and listen. If not, I hope you'll do it this week. Quiet time is, is not an if-I-can sort of random meeting with God that I do when I think about it or when I think I can do it. But it's a habit of a daily time alone, listening for God to speak to me. A time set aside when you can give God the, the best part of your day, the first part, hopefully, of your day. I told the group on Thursday night that for like two months now, I've been waking up at 3 o'clock every morning. And that's when I get up, go have my quiet time, 30 minutes or so, and then go back to bed. And then get up at 7.30 or something, 6, 7.30, whatever, to do the day. And you know what? I don't even have to set the alarm. He wakes me up. It's an internal alarm now. It takes three weeks to learn a new thing. This is what psychologists tell us. It takes three weeks to learn a new thing, and then it takes three more weeks before that new thing becomes a habit for you, where you don't even have to think about it. It's, it, just, it just comes second nature. Well, six weeks of seven days a week is just about 40 days. How many times have you read about 40 days in the Bible? This happened for 40 days, and this happened for 40 days, and this happened for 40 days, and Rick Warren wrote a book called 40 Days of Purpose, and 40 days, and 40 days, and 40 days. There's some reason that it's 40 days. It may be that to learn something new, to get rid of that garbage that's in there and put something in its place, it takes about three weeks. And then to make it a habit takes another three weeks. The problem is most of us give up before we get to the six weeks. And we say, oh, that didn't work. I'm not going to do that. Stick with it. Go to a special place, a place of solitude and quietness and comfort where you know that you can meet him and he'll come to meet you. Put it on your point, uh, a calendar appointment book if you need to. Make a date with Jesus. <laughs> Have you ever been stood up on a date? How do you feel? How do you think he feels when we stand him up? He's expecting us for our quiet time. It's a time to build up an intimate relationship with God so that he desires to hear from you and you desire to hear from him. We look forward to that time, both of us. So spiritual growth comes best from close contact with God. And these guys, these 12, had that contact daily. They were with him daily. It might be well for us to look at these names here again. The names... Um, of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter. His brother, Andrew. James, the son of Zebedee. And his brother, John. The John who wrote the book of John and Revelation and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 
Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector who who wrote this book, James son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. There's 12 of them here. Why 12? We don't really know. But there were 12 tribes in Israel. Could it be that each one was designated in some way to a tribe? We don't know that. Now, when I did some research, and I was, I was telling the first uh, service group that I think at some time in the future I'd like to do a series just on these 12. Some of them we know real well, Peter and John and uh, Matthew and even Thomas, Andrew. Some of them we don't know anything about other than their name is in this list right here. This list is, is uh, given in Matthew. There's a list of them that's given in Mark. There's a list that's given in Luke. And then there's a list that's given in uh, Acts. The same names. They seem to be divided into three groups of 12. And the first name in each one of those three groups is the same. Which indicates to me that that person, that man must have been the leader of that group. So they had small groups and this was a small group leader, if you will. The other names within that group are the same, but they're in different orders. So, obviously, those don't have as much um, um, priority as the, as the leader does. There's some brothers here. We know the tax collector. We know some fishermen people. You know, the sons of Zebedee, of course, were fishers. Um, Peter and Andrew were fishers. Some of them, we don't know what they did. It's just an interesting study. But these disciples, they were, they were humanly defective and they were very inept. We do know that. See, society routinely sets standards of qualification for virtually everything that happens around us. If you'll think about that, you'll know. Businesses establish qualification for employees. They say, this employee has to meet these qualifications educationally. This employee has to wear this, and he can't wear this. This employee needs to look this way and can't look this way. Um, Yada, 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 you know, so forth. Advertisements for jobs list qualifications too. They're there to help us match up with, with the jobs that are available. A person has to qualify in order to get to buy a house or a car, to get a credit card, to enroll in college, to receive a driver's license, on and on. Qualifications seem to be important. But these guys were highly unqualified. And they seem to be plagued by, by shortcomings. I pulled out four different shortcomings that I could find, and I'm sure there's others if I just took a little more time to look at them. The first shortcoming I saw was their lack of spiritual understanding. These are the apostles now. 
And they didn't understand spiritual things. On one occasion, Peter said to Jesus, explain this parable to us. And Jesus replied, are you still lacking in understanding? And when Jesus gave the disciples an object lesson in humility, that's what he was teaching was humility and servanthood. He pers- by, by personally washing their feet, Peter, in all of his pride, refused to let Jesus wash his feet. And then when Jesus explained to him that he needed to do this if he wanted to have anything to do with Jesus at all, well, Peter went to the other extreme. He said, well, then wash all of me. So by those two ex- uh, responses, it's obvious that Peter didn't understand what was going on. He didn't have that spiritual understanding. The second shortcoming I saw was their lack of humility. Often they failed to understand what Jesus said simply because they assumed that they already knew everything. How many of us in our jobs, how many of us in our churches assume that we know it all? I don't need to I don't need to go to that Bible study. I've studied the Bible for 15 years, 50 years. I, I don't need to go to that. They were proud, jealous, envious men who were frequently more concerned about their own welfare and their own prestige than the work that Jesus was doing, which is really what they were called to do. The third shortcoming I saw was their lack of faith. Apostles, lack of faith. They trusted Jesus for, for their salvation, yes, but they struggled to trust him for truth, for goodness, even for his power after they'd seen all these miracles taking place. Numerous times through scripture, Jesus referred to them as men of little faith. When they became terrified for their lives during that storm on the Sea of Galilee, he said, why are you so afraid? How is it that you have no faith? These were the apostles. And the fourth one I found was lack of commitment. You see, when the time of real testing came, Judas Iscariot betrayed him. Peter denied him, and the other ten, they ran away. They were afraid and left. They didn't want to be seen anywhere close to him. They didn't lead the church in turning the world upside down because they were extraordinarily talented, or even because they were naturally gifted, but because in spite of their human limitations... And all of their failures, they surrendered themselves to God. And God's power is perfected in our weaknesses, in our mess-ups. He can perfect his power. So for three years they lived with Jesus. He healed the sick. He cleansed the demon-possessed. He raised the dead. You know... He loved everybody and anybody. It didn't matter who they were. And in Mark three fourteen, it says, Now he appointed the twelve that they might be with him. Why? In order that they might become like him. 
and they did. One of our values here, I saw this uh, between the two services, I had forgotten we had it up, is Christ-likeness. We want renovators to be like Christ. We want them to become like Christ. Well, how do you come, uh, become like Christ? You spend time with him. Because people, you become like the people that you hang out with. Isn't that true? You start talking like them, thinking like them, dressing like them, walking like them, eating like them. You become like the people you spend the most time with. You want to become like one of the characters on the soaps? Keep watching the soaps every afternoon. You want to become like Snooky, the epitome of uh, Jerseyite? Is that, is that the right word? Jerseyite? What do they call people? Jerseyite. Okay. Well, then keep watching her on reality TV. <laughs> New Jerseyan. Uh, but if you want to be like Jesus, spend time with Jesus. You're going to become like who you spend time with. Alone. Daily. So what about these 12 that were listed here? Well, the only plan that God has for reaching the world... (laughs) It's kind of scary, isn't it? The only plan that God has for reaching the world is for those people who know him to tell somebody else that doesn't know him. There's not a plan B. That's his plan. Kind of a dumb plan, isn't it? And he's counting on these apostles, these inept, unqualified people, and now they're counting on us? Oh, my. Maybe we need to help him with a plan B. (laughs) The history of God's work on this earth is to call unqualified people. Once they're, un- once they're called, those unqualified people are equipped by him to do the work that he calls them to do. It never works the other way around. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us that makes that possible. A great writer can take a worthless piece of paper pin a poem on that piece of paper and it becomes valuable. A a great painter can go down to the store and buy a 50 cent piece of canvas, paint a picture on it, and the picture becomes priceless. A wealthy man can sign his name to a worthless piece of paper and just because of his name, it can be worth a million dollars. In an infinitely greater way, Jesus Christ can take a worthless, corrupted, repulsive life and transform that life into a child of God and make him a useful worker in his kingdom work. There was a guy named uh, Henry Drummond who was a Scottish author and evangelist. And he was invited one time to speak at this exclusive men's club in downtown London. 
He went, and his talk began with this statement. Gentlemen, the entrance fee into the kingdom of heaven is nothing. However, the annual subscription fee is everything. Because Jesus paid the total price for salvation, it costs you and me nothing to be his disciples. It costs us nothing. It's free. But here's the big idea on your sheets. To become a faithful Christ follower costs everything that we have. Everything. The, the 12 men that Jesus called as disciples and then transformed into apostles were willing to pay everything. They turned their backs on their occupations, turned their backs on their lifestyles, their homes, their families, their plans, their aspirations, their hopes, their dreams, and they committed themselves totally to following Jesus. Remember when, when he said, Come be fishers of men. And these guys that had fished for all their lives, that's all they knew, dropped their nets and followed him. They didn't care where it led. They didn't care what it cost. They were 100% in. They were a committed few among an unbelieving many. The apostles, the apostles were ordinary men. Yet there has never been a task in the history of this entire world equal to that task that these common men carried out. They were the first agents of his ministry that would set into motion the advancement of the kingdom of God what Walt was talking to us about this morning before the second song. They ushered in, helped to usher in the kingdom of God. That's our responsibility today. And just like in Jesus' time and throughout the rest of history, there's false disciples that are willing to accept whatever part of the gospel fits their personal inclination you know, well, they'll take some, leave some out. I've seen uh, Thomas Jefferson's Bible, and he cut out parts that he didn't think were true. They couldn't be possible. Kind of, you know, unimportant things like the virgin birth. I mean, you know, if, if, he, if he didn't think it was possible, he cut it out of the book. It became his Bible instead of the Bible. And these false disciples, well, they're willing to be identified as Christians, yes. They'll belong to a church. They'll be active in the work of the church. They'll even give money to support the church. But they have no intention whatsoever of giving themselves completely and totally to Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Master. First Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, 
and his brother, John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Those 12, and the list goes on and on and on and on down through the ages right to today. Some of you may be on this list. Some of you may want to be on this list and are not yet. It starts with spending time alone with him, listening to him speak to you. Hearing what he has to say. And then choosing to obey it. As you go, as you're going, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely, you have received. It cost you nothing. Freely, you have received. Freely, give. We've said before here at this table that this costs us nothing. And it costs Jesus his life. On the night uh, before he was betrayed, he took bread at the meal and he broke that bread. And he said, this is my body, this, which is broken for you. And after dinner, he took the cup, poured the wine in saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember my death until I come. There's a promise. He's coming. He's coming. I don't know whether it'll be this afternoon during the Daytona 500. I don't know whether it'll be tonight. I don't know whether it'll be this coming week. I don't know whether it'll be a year or so in the future. He's coming, though. He promised he would come. His kingdom is here now, and he's coming. We get to see into the kingdom a bit during this in-between time. We get to see some wonderful glimpses of what it's going to be like. Until then, he says, you remember me at this table. Take some time. Maybe recommit yourself Maybe commit yourself for the very first time. 
talk to him a little bit about the things you've done that you shouldn't have done. The things that you should have done that you haven't done. Bring them to him. And come and meet him at this table. This is his special place. As the servers come, I want to remind you that in Renovation Church, we use wine. If you prefer not to use wine, we have juice available on either side from the server. If you'll just let them know, they'll be sure to direct you there. We'll also have some ministry team members on either side to pray with you about any issue that may be confronting you. Doesn't, doesn't have to be major. Anything that's on your mind is a concern to him as well. You can drop your connect cards, your gifts, whatever, in, in the baskets on either side uh, as you're on your way to communion. Take a moment and then meet him at this special place.